listening to Hypercritical. This is a weekly talk show ruminating on exactly what is wrong in the world of Apple and related technologies and businesses. Nothing, you see, is so perfect that it can't be complained and criticized by my co-host, John Syracusa. I'm Dan Benjamin. The show is made possible by FreshBooks.com and MailChimp.com, which we'll tell you about in a little bit. Uh, But this is episode number 13, Creepy 13. Are you superstitious? I am not. Okay. In some cultures, 13 is considered lucky. A lot of people would say it's unlucky. Should we skip? Should we just call this episode 14? In my culture, 13 is the number after 12. (laughs) Good enough. Good enough for me. You sold me. How are you? How's your week been? Been good so far. Good. We have a giant pile of follow-up, and I'm still thinking about what parts I'm going to trim. Don't trim any of it. I say we do the whole thing, all of it. The whole show would be follow-up then. Yeah. Maybe we could once and for all clear it out, start fresh. No, this wouldn't clear it out. This was just supposed to be one show's worth, but it expanded. But I think I'll stop about halfway through. Um, I want to start with... Stuff about Pixar, believe it or not. It was the big uh, shock on last week's show. Yeah, well, it was a shock. I was shocked. Yeah, uh, not a lot of feedback on that, surprisingly. Uh, it brought out a few of the people who had previously had bad thoughts about Pixar but didn't feel safe expressing them. So now once they hear someone else say anything bad about Pixar, they will come out of the woodwork and tell you <laughs> what what they think uh, is wrong with Pixar. Right. Uh, some of them I agree with and some of them I didn't. But uh, there was one good one that stuck out uh, to me. And it was uh, someone who brought up a point that I'd thought about before but hadn't tied it into what I said on last week's show. Uh, but he did and it connected all together. This was Kieran Healy. He's usually in the chat room. I don't know if he's there today. He was pointing out that uh, most Pixar movies have male lead characters. Uh, I think all of them do at this point. And there's, there's very few female characters. And this is something you tend not to notice in movies in general, you know, because certain genres always have male characters and Pixar does kids' movies and their adventure movies and they always have male leads. Right. And that's not a big deal exactly until, you know, he, he had his daughter say to him while watching the Cars movie, uh, why don't the girls get to go on the racetrack? And you don't notice it until you hear something like that. And then, you know, you have this emotional reaction where you're like, you know what? Why don't the girls get to go on the racetrack? <laughs> What's what exactly? And then you just look at all the other uh, movies that Pixar does. And, and the protagonist is always a male and the female characters are uh, never, you know, important or strong. The, the main exception is Elastigirl from The Incredibles, I guess. Well, she's still a secondary character. It's about the it's about the dad. Right. But now, see, I don't I don't think that. Pixar or any movie studio needs to have some sort of balance like, you know, th- their lead characters must exactly match the percentages of people on the earth. So 51% women and X percent this race. And uh, that's that's ridiculous. But Pixar really does strike me as as a male oriented or or as you would say, orientated uh, I would not say company or, or production company. I mean, if you think about it, n- name name the, the the movies that they've made. I'm not saying girls don't love these these movies, too, but to me, they feel they feel like uh, boy movies. Yeah, so that that was the tie-in to last uh, week. Because I was talking about how they had a sort of uh, a culture of uh, engineering creativity. Yeah, and engineering cultures and engineers in general, uh, it tends to be like a male-dominated culture. So, uh, Kieran was wondering, are these two things connected? Is the sort of 
uh, engineer-led culture of Pixar, uh, it, uh, is that causing this uh, sort of male-dominated storyline phenomenon? I, I don't know if the two are connected, but it's it's uh, interesting to consider. And the comparison is with Miyazaki, who, uh, who I was comparing Pixar to. And Miyazaki's movies are, I don't know if it's majority, but it seems like the vast majority of the protagonists are female. That, that's one of the reasons I have my daughter watch all those movies, because... They're, they're movies where the, the lead character is a female, and I don't. I started her off on these movies, and she, you know, only saw movies with female lead characters in the beginning of her life, just to sort of normalize her on the idea that yes, you can do everything that that the male characters can do. Uh, there's no limitations based on your gender. Um, she's never said anything about the Pixar movies because she's seen them too. But it's, it is a, is a stark contrast between these right. two cultures. Now I have no idea why Miyazaki picked female leads, and I have no idea why Pixar mostly picks male leads. Um, but the uh, correlation is there, and I thought it was interesting because mm. of maybe how it it's to balance it. things out, like in the universe. That could be. I mean, it could, it could just be coincidence. It could just be you know that's the way uh, uh, the cookie crumbled for each of the stories. Uh, and the, the other Pixar news I got uh, in feedback was all the other various Pixar projects because I was talking about what Pixar should do next um, and their their culture of not letting bad things out the door. Uh, so on that front, uh, a couple people pointed out, and I'd heard this long ago, but I'd forgotten about it, but people had reminded me that Pixar's movie Newt, as in like the little lizard thing, was canceled last year. I think that's the first time that I recall that a sort of high-profile Pixar project that people knew about outside the company was canceled. Mm. And this was supposed to be a movie about uh, a blue-footed Newt who was uh, in, in a lab, and he was the last one on Earth, but then they found a female in the wild, and they bring the female from the wild into him to, to hope to try to get them to mate. Uh, the, the, the PR they showed for it had uh, the male newt in the cage, and he could see from his cage a poster on the wall detailing the nine steps of the mating ritual of the blue-footed newt. So he had been studying that poster, you know, for when the female comes, right? right. But there was a coffee machine blocking the ninth step, <laughs> so he <laughs> wasn't sure what to do. So that's, that's the premise of the movie, and the two of them end up uh, escaping from the cage and going out in the wild and fighting with each other. You know, it, it's sort of like a romantic comedy with newts. So it sounded interesting to me, uh, but that was canned. And so when you hear that that's canned, is that, you know, was it canceled because it was too, uh, you know, ambitious and risque, or was it canceled just because it wasn't working out? You know, so you don't, you don't know based on the fact that it was canceled whether this is an example of Pixar not taking enough risks or this is an example of Pixar killing something that was just not working out, you know. Um, but it is interesting that those type of things are happening publicly now whereas before you know the, the rewrites of two, toy story 2 and stuff like that happened internally you'd only heard about them after the fact like after the movie was already out and successful uh pixar's actual next movie is called brave it used to be called the the bear and the bow or the bow and the bear or something uh but now it's called brave and this one surprise has a female protagonist uh, it's a scottish uh girl who's the daughter of a king and she goes off on some sort of adventure uh so that's going to be their actual next movie, and it'll be interesting to see what that uh, ends up like. Uh, and then a couple of uh, people pointed me to the the live action projects that I alluded to for the uh, the ex Pixar people. One of them was a uh, Andrew Stanton who did uh, Wall-E and stuff. He's going on to do a live action movie, not with Pixar, called John Carter of Mars, based on a, a sci fi character from long ago. Right. Uh, and it's interesting that. First, it's going to be rated PG-13, so it's not going to be entirely a kid's film. And second, it's live action, it's Disney, but it's not Pixar. So they're sort of hemming and hawing about, well, is this a, is this a Pixar movie? Is this Pixar's first live action movie? Well, not really, but it's, you know, it's Andrew Stanton, but the Pixar people aren't working on it, but it's in Disney, but now Disney owns Pixar. So maybe this is a uh, 
an experiment to try to give the Pixar treatment to a live action movie. And if it works mm. out, maybe Pixar could go off in that direction, but we'll see. Uh, but I think it's, it's interesting it's going to be PG-13. I think Incredibles was just PG, right? Not PG-13. I'm pretty sure it was PG. I'll, I'll look at that. But now you, would you say, did you mention Ponyo? Uh, we talked about it last week. I mean, would you say that the main character was female? It seemed like the it was as much about her as it was about the little boy. It, it's tough to say in some of these movies. Like Mon- Princess Mononoke is another example where it seems that the protagonist is male, but the title character and the main sort of semi-antagonist are both females uh, and important females. And Ponyo, yeah. like, Ponyo is the title character, but she has very little dialogue, and you, you open on and follow... Well, you open on Ponyo, but you follow the little boy's adventure. So the little boy feels like the protagonist, but Ponyo is obviously important. But right. she doesn't have much to say during the movie. And then there's the, the mother and everything. Uh, female characters in Miyazaki movies have no limitations. Right. Uh, and it just so happens that the, the clear lead in many of them is female. Um, so not only was The Incredibles PG, but it was the first Pixar film to be PG. Right. I remember that being a big deal. So yeah. now... John Carter of Mars, live action, PG-13, not really Pixar, but a Pixar guy at the helm. So it'll be interesting to see how that turns out. Mm-hmm. I have one other movie thing, but it's a, it's a big rant. Maybe I'll tack it on the end if we finish early, but I doubt that will happen. Uh, but the, the next thing I want to talk to, which isn't actually follow-up, and I'm just sticking stuff in here that aren't part of the main topic, but uh, it's that open compute thing that happened this week. Did you yeah. talk about that with anybody yet? Uh, Christina Warren and I talked about it uh, yesterday a little bit, but the the, the gist of it is... Open Compute is Facebook's attempt, I think, this is my my gut feeling on this, is that this is their attempt to sort of out-Google Google by not only saying we have the most awesome data center ever, but we're going to share all of the details about how we did this, going to give away all the specs, all every, everything you want to know about making an awesome data center in the way that Google has never really revealed that. We're going I forget to. which episode we talked about that, but uh, which one was when I was talking about what uh, Google's biggest advantage is? I think it was maybe the one about Apple Online stuff. Uh, but at any rate, I had said that Google's biggest competitive advantage was its operations, was its data center operations and its hardware and software in that regard. And, and I said that they had basically like a 10-year head start. Yeah. Uh, what, I, what I meant by that was like starting from the time that they did this, not starting from now, obviously. So there's some ways into their 10-year head start. The question is how far. And in and, and, and the past episode, I said that there's lots of open source uh, stuff in this area that's like, well, Google won't give us what we have, so we'll make our own. So there's stuff like Hadoop or the various no SQL databases and stuff like that where there are, there are open source initiatives to try to do the stuff that Google has but isn't sharing. Um, and the lead that they have, uh, like when I say they have a 10-year lead, I'm kind of implying that the lead's going to go away, that the, the open source stuff will eventually catch up. Uh, but most of the open source stuff I mentioned is just on the software side. And the hardware side is a big part of this. So I think Facebook Facebook makes its intentions clear. This is a quote right from their uh, Open Compute website. It says, by releasing Open Compute project technologies as open hardware, our goal is to develop, to develop servers and data centers following the model traditionally associated with open source software projects. So they're basically saying, we are doing with hardware what people normally do with open source software. And that's, that's a clear indication that what, what Facebook feels is that they acknowledge that Google has had the lead in this area, in, in data center operations. And they think the only way that they can, or the, maybe the way they can catch up the fastest, possibly the only way they can ever catch them 
is to reframe the game as everybody versus Google. Mm. So they're going to be the everybody. It's like we, we could try to do it on our own and Google could do it on our own, but Google has more money than us. They have a big head start. And it's going to be really tough to catch them. But if we just say everybody versus Google, then suddenly it's more of a fair fight. So trying to sort of, you know, hasten the demise of Google's lead in this area. And you'll know that the lead is gone. Like if you're watching this space, you'll know the lead is gone when Google starts opening up its data center, hardware, mm. and software and stuff. You right? don't so think they would do that just just to have a, a response? You don't think they would do that just I to say? I don't think they, they need to yet. But like, uh, because look what they did in the software world. All these open source sort of semi-equivalents of stuff that Google does based on Google's white papers and their vague you know notions, they're not coming out and say, okay, you can have our whole software infrastructure because you guys are doing open source equivalents. They're happy to let Yahoo and everybody else work on their open source equivalents and the various NoSQL databases and all that stuff. And, you know, uh, Facebook has its scribe logging, logging infrastructure, all, all sorts of projects like that. Go on and Google says, that's fine. You guys go with that. But we still feel like our stuff is better. And in fact, we're revising our stuff. We're not sitting on our hands. We are making the version two of, of all our internal stuff or whatever. But no one was challenging them in the hardware. So now Facebook is with this initiative trying to formalize the software effort and then saying we're going to try to compete with you on far- hardware by pulling everybody else into our circle. Say, we did a little bit of work, now everybody join in and see if we can't, as an entire you know, industry, compete with this one company that won't share its goodies. And I think as soon as you see Google dip its toe in and say, well, you know, we're releasing X as open source, so we're, you know, here's our hardware specs or whatever, that's basically the end of their lead. They will be acknowledging that it, they've at least decided that the, that the open source stuff is about to pass them by and they need to uh, contribute. Now, right. I don't know how successful this effort's going to be in that regard because the software part, that's kind of happening already, but it happens slowly and organically. And hardware is harder because you can't just get contributors to hardware like, you know, randomly off the internet. There's, <laughs> right. some, there's some minimum, uh, you know, level of entry that you have to, to cross and say, well, are you a hardware engineer? Do you have hardware to work with? Are you a company that does this? Uh, you know, did you ever cr- consider going into that side of the uh, of the house doing the hardware engineer stuff? Well, I majored in computer engineering, which doesn't have software any in it. It's really an electrical engineering major, and they, we do go over hardware stuff. But I did enough hardware stuff to know that I didn't like it, hmm. or rather that I like software better. Not that I didn't like it, but that I definitely like software. Better. I could see you in there with a the, you know a little soldering iron and kind of you know hunkering over one of those little Radio Shack things with the transistors in it. Yeah, you have to do that for class, but like the, the people who are building these Facebook things are really more of systems integrators. Like they're specking out stuff to uh, hardware manufacturers in Taiwan who are, you know, producing prototypes for them. And, and they, they're getting they're, and, yeah. and yeah, I think the interesting thing about this, John, is that they're this is mostly custom stuff. This isn't off the rack. Oh stuff. yeah, that's that's the big deal. Yeah. Google does all its custom stuff, and they said we're going to do our custom stuff. We're going to have a motherboard made right. for us, tailored right. to our exact specifications. We're going to build our own case you know spec out where the fans are going to go our own power supply the power supply is like half the project because they you know design their own power supply to be super efficient and run off ac and dc google's power supplies i think have built-in ups's so they don't have to use a big ups in the data center it's all sorts of extremely custom stuff here and it would be better for facebook to try to recoup those costs by saying everybody let's share let's all work on these designs together so we don't have to bear the full cost of developing this we'd like to do it as a community google says we'll just bear the whole cost and you don't get to share with us so I'll definitely be watching that space because that will be. I think it'll be a big indicator of where Google sees itself. Right now, I haven't heard a thing from Google, so I think they're secure in what they have and secure in what they're going to do next. The worst thing I could imagine would happen would be that Google would say, "Oh yeah, here you go. You want uh, GFS and all this cool stuff we have internally? Here's the version one of all those things." But internally, they're using version two. That's like super lame. I don't think that would be an indication of anything except for ill will on Google's part, where they're saying. 
we're not going to give you the good, good stuff. But if you want to use what we were using five years ago, go nuts, guys. Because you know, it's still right. better than what you have now. Oh, where are we? So I got three more little follow-up things, but I think I'm going to skip them. And maybe we'll circle back if we have time at the end. Are you sure? Uh, so we're about 20-something minutes in. Well, so here, here are my three things, and you can pick one of them if you want to do okay, one. Okay, yeah, let's, let's pick one. Yeah, so one is I'm going, to complain, I'm going to complain about George Lucas and Star Wars briefly. Oh, that's a whole show. I know, but it's, it's, a, very, it's a very specific focus Okay, thing. what's number two? Number two is that Quick Pick app that was rejected from the Mac App Store this week. Did you see that story? I did not see that story, so maybe that would be a good so one. There's another complaining about app rejection story. Okay. And number three is uh, Google Contacts and how they're annoying and the options to make them less annoying. Uh, I don't want to do that one. I would say I would say the first one or the second one, but I, my gut says go with the first one. You want to hear that? Okay, I'll do the Star Wars one. This is not... You're because right. I doubt, could I be, doubt could any be a whole our, show about Star Wars, and I don't know how tech-related this is, but... I doubt any of our listeners have ever seen Star Wars, so... This keeps coming up in my trial. I think the thing that triggered this same anger in me recently was seeing the, the Blu-ray release of Star Wars and stuff uh, that's being advertised now, and it's just making me angry about this stuff again. So, <laughs> everyone knows what the problem is with Star Wars. A certain set of fans want the original versions without the special effects added. You know, they want the cleaned up, you know, removing the mat lines from the optical effects right. on the original. So that the trilogy. TIE fighter doesn't look like it's on a piece of black cardboard right. as it flies across. That's that's deemed acceptable because it didn't really change the content of the movie. But anything where you start changing the content of the movie, adding scenes, adding new elements that aren't there, people don't like that. And Lucas, as we know, doesn't want to release those movies. Now, there was this URL that went around sometime last year called The Secret History of Star Wars. And there was a section, that's actually a book now, I'll, I'll link to the site in the show notes, but there was a section of that book was specifically about the original print itself. And one of the excuses that Lucas and company have used at various times is that even if you wanted the original trilogy thing, oh, that, that film doesn't exist anymore. So all that exists is the special edition. So tough luck. And, and I will link to this thing about the, the film stock of the, you know, saving the Star Wars film and how they cut pieces out of the original negatives to make the special editions and what you would what would be involved in having to try to piece together a digital copy of the original trilogy without the special edition effects in it. And this thing goes through, you know, that's another excuse Lucas has used. First he said like the, the footage doesn't exist and second he said, well, it, to make it exist we would have to re-digitally scan and restore all these little bits and pieces of various film and it would cost like 20 million dollars or something like that. Now, it's obvious the real reason why he doesn't want these things. He just doesn't want it. He says, this is my version of the movie. I, it's my movie. I get to decide what it is. That's it. But every time he gives a financial excuse or an excuse about the non-existence of the negatives, which is basically disproved by this, uh, uh, this saving Star Wars thing from the secret history of Star Wars, I think about the unique situation that Star Wars is in, where a lot of times there's something a bunch of fans want, like some hardcore fan base says, I want, I really want the X version of Y and I just, I really want to have this thing or whatever. And then there's the reality of what it would take to do that. Well, you know, it costs $10 million and if there's only a hundred people or a hundred thousand or whatever, you know, you won't recoup your costs because it costs a lot of money to do this work. And we simply can't afford to do this work for such a small subset of fans. And this is very true about really small, narrow interest stuff, like maybe some particular anime thing that you could never justify the cost of doing it. Now, Star Wars, you can debate how many people would buy an original trilogy, you know, Blu-ray, for example. And maybe it's like, yeah, it seems like a lot in our circles because all of our friends want that. But in the grand scheme of things, it's not enough to recoup the cost. But Star Wars is in a unique position because 
the people who want that original trilogy cut of the film have a humongous, and I'm just supposing here, but I think you'll probably agree with me, have a humongous overlap with the people who have the expertise and access to the equipment to do the work for free. <laughs> right? Probably, probably so right. Of all the people in the world who 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 would want the original Star Wars trilogy, how many of them do you think work in the in the film scanning special effects industry, right? Who have access to the film scanners, who are experts in this area, who would do the work for free in a heartbeat. Like if, if Lucas went out and set out a call and said, we want to restore the original version of Star Wars and put out a Blu-ray, but we don't want to pay a cent for labor to do the work. Right. They would get, not only would they get volunteers out the wazoo, they would get volunteers who are the very best in their field at what they do, right? Willing to volunteer their time to do this. I, I just can't even think about it, you know, because people are clamoring to do this. I bet if, you know, if you put out that call in the first day, you would have the best possible team you could assemble yeah. to do this, willing to work for free. And so any money that you made off this at all, like the, the whole thing for free, Lucas wouldn't have to be involved at all. Any money you made at us at all, all you'd have to recoup is the cost of the 10 you cents. Know that would never happen. They'd I never know, do that. But like it is, it's the most unique situation where, when else are you going to get this for free? When else are you going to say, it's a zero-risk proposition, George. We will do all the work for free, and we will do a better job on this than, you, than the people who made the, you know, the actual breweries, because the people working on this will be working at it out of the goodness of their heart, and they will use like all their skills and all their powers, to quote from The Godfather, which we should talk about. Yeah, we'll talk, we'll talk about that. Yeah. To make this the best Blu-ray release ever in the history of the universe. Uh, and if they happen to leak a bunch of... Uh, digital scans onto the internet during the process then you know oh well but <laughs> i just get angry when i think about that i guess maybe someday lucas will be gone and someone else will think about that but it, it just bothers me that all this is tied up in economics when we're in a situation here where economics doesn't have to matter at all so that was my star wars thing i don't know how it got triggered and how i think it was just thinking about movies and seeing the star wars blu-ray go by uh, on the internet and people talking about it and i just got angry all over again about that and that's not even today's topic. And before we say what today's topic is, John, this is your cue to unplug your microphone because we're doing our, like, our first sponsor. And, uh, and this is a great sponsor. This is a, I, I love it when I get to talk a lot about my personal experience with a sponsor. And this is, this is one of them, FreshBooks.com. Uh, we've had them on the show before, and I was using them a little bit, but I hadn't really made the, the switch from QuickBooks. Because my accountant was saying, oh, no, you know, QuickBooks is just easier. It's easier for us. I finally just, I, I, I got to say, I said, no, I'm done with, I'm done with QuickBooks. I can't, it's horrible. I need a way, I need something that's more modern. I need something that, that takes the headache out of invoicing. Because to be honest, I hate it. I hate the whole invoicing process. I don't know. It's not fun trying to keep track of, uh, have they seen the invoice even? Have they paid it? Where, where is it in the process? Well, this is the, this is the beautiful thing about FreshBooks is that when you send an invoice to a customer, to a client, you know instantly if they've seen it. Forget if they've paid it yet. It shows you that, of course. But, I mean, it, 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 it shows you. They've seen, they have seen the invoice. It's great. Tons of integration. You can set up recurring payments and, and all kinds of stuff, and it, it just takes the headache out of this. Custom logos, everything, you name it. And so here's what they're doing for hypercritical listeners. Every week, they're give, going to give away... A, a birthday cake. Even if it's not your birthday, you can still get this. They're going to give away a cake to a hypercritical listener every week. So you go to freshbooks.com, you sign up, 
And when you sign up, by the way, that's free. It doesn't cost anything to sign up. You can even send invoices and stuff uh, for free. You, you, don't, you don't have to pay anything. to trip. But please do try it out once you get in there. Don't just sign up to get the cake. Trust me. You're going to love this. But once you get in there, you put in as you're filling it out. Hypercritical. That's where you heard about the show. And you will be eligible to get uh, one of these uh, free cake. Every week they're sending out a cake. So go check them out. Freshbooks.com. You're going to love it. Did you plug back in, John? Are you back? I'm back. You know, uh, you mentioned you you had a ditched QuickBooks. Yeah, and oh, that, that, the re- worst. that reminded me of the another worst. legacy financial program that a lot of people are stuck on. Peachtree. So I've got a. I use Quicken here, and I use whatever the last version of Quicken was for yeah. Mac OS X before they went off on this weird Quicken Life financial whatever stuff. But it's PowerPC only. I think it's like Quicken 2007 or something. It's an ancient program. It's PowerPC only, and I'm realizing as I'm playing with Lion and everything that it's going to be a problem because Lion doesn't seem to run macOS uh, or PowerPC apps. And, and I thought I'd have no PowerPC apps left, but once you can't run them at all, you realize how many you rely on. So what the heck am I going to do when I upgrade to Lion? Am I just going to keep one machine back and run Quicken on it? Like, there's no good alternative to it. I wish there was... I know there are a lot of alternatives to Quicken, but like if you're, all your data is in Quicken and, and you know, and you want to keep, I'd rather just keep using Quicken because it's what we know how to use. It works fine. Uh, the fact that it's PowerPC doesn't bother me. I don't want to go through the whole hassle of having to upgrade to some other program. Even if some program uh, says that it imports Quicken files and everything, it's just a hassle, you know? Oh, that that's, that's gotten me depressed. I, I, is QuickBooks for the Mac PowerPC or is it uh, Intel? I, I don't, uh, Quick QuickBooks is Intel. Well, at least the people are in a better situation with that. But yeah, here, financial program seems like one of those. I don't. I don't want. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it anymore. I don't want to have to have this this ancient app with the terrible yeah. interface. That's what's been happening. Is the web services are taking over totally. a lot of these apps that were financial. Although it wigs a lot of people out, like putting financial information in the web, but it's clearly the way all these type of apps are going. You know, so maybe that's a solution. Maybe I don't know. They just they already bought Mint, so. <laughs> I can't really get away to, away from Intuit for my finances. I don't know. Yeah. I'm depressed about that. All right. All right. What's the topic? So, you don't even know because we didn't, we didn't talk about it. Oh, I added it to the... 30 minutes into the show. Let's hear show. the topic. Yeah. So this is one you kept picking yes. in the past weeks and we never did. This is, this is Apple's philosophy and practice of UI consistency across the years. Yes. I've been wanting this one. I didn't think I had much to say on this, but when I was doing notes for it, I guess I do. Or, I don't know. There's so much to talk about. I mean, how far yeah. back do you want to go? That's the real yeah, that, question. Yeah, that's how I always start. That's why I ended up having a lot to say. So I got to go back. I got to go back to the beginning to talk about anything. You know, because keep in mind that even though probably, I'm guessing a lot of our listeners are Mac users, they may not have been Mac users three years ago or five years ago or 10 years ago or, or in 1984 like we were. They may not have been alive in 1984. Yes, Very let's true. All feel, let's all feel old together. Let's all, let's all join hands and, you know... Uh, sing songs about our, our, our misspent youth. But anyway, the point is, there are a lot of people who never even used OS 9, let alone 7. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and they don't know about the, the HIG, and they don't know about all of this, this extra stuff. And, and geeks like us, we obsess about this. So I think there's some stuff that'll be surprising even for old-timers. Uh, I'm going to p- try to put a lot of these things in the show notes. A lot of them are just screenshots, like disembodied images that I Googled around for because it's hard to find good comprehensive pictures of old UIs, uh, but I would suggest that people actually look at them uh, after the show and so they can see what 
I'm talking about here. So I'm going to go back to the beginning with the Mac. Um, now, for the people who don't know, the youngins, the Mac really was the first major GUI platform that had widespread success. There were GUIs before it, but they weren't as successful as the Mac. The Mac sort of defined the, the graphical user interface. Uh, and along with that was this big push from Apple to get developers to make Mac apps. That sounds kind of silly. It's like, well, obviously, you know, if you make a new platform, you want people to make apps. But what they meant by that was they wanted you to make an application that looked like it belonged on the Mac. They didn't want you to take like a DOS or Apple II program and put it in a window and say, oh, look, I brought my program to the Mac. You know, you double-click this icon, the program launches, and inside the window is what you would see previously on, on a DOS screen or what you would see previously on an Apple II screen. That is the last thing Apple wanted. They wanted you to make Mac applications. And the, the famous example of them sort of enforcing this with hardware was that they didn't put arrow keys on the original Mac's keyboard, which sounds crazy. You know, how can you have a keyboard without arrow keys? But that was their clear signal to people writing applications. Do not make, no function keys either, by the way. Do right, not make right. a DOS application in a window. Do not make an mm -hmm. Apple II application in a window. There are no arrow keys. You have to use the mouse. Make a Mac application. And, and this was part of their push to sort of establish the GUI as a viable paradigm for computing, which also sounds ridiculous. Like, you know, pe people who are younger don't even realize that there was a long time before the GUI was anything. And it was, you know, you'd have this computer with a mouse attached. And it was like, that must be some toy computer. Is it a Fisher-Price? You know, real men use the command line interface. This is not a real computer. There was a good decade of that after the Mac was introduced, uh, of dismissing it as, as a toy. So Apple was, you know, Apple's challenge was, Make this acceptable. Make people to understand that it's okay for a computer to look like this and that you should make your applications look like this and that that old stuff with the command line, that's going away. And that was an incredibly tough sell. And if you didn't live through it, it's hard to even imagine that this would be an issue of debate because nowadays you could not get a regular person to sit in front of a command line and do anything. But back then, that was the dominant metaphor for uh, inter interfacing with a computer. Yeah, now, that was considered, and I'll, I'll just mention this, there was a notion for many years that even even the youngest in our audience should remember uh, that it was considered that, that Macs were for artists and designers and maybe musicians. And PCs were like if you wanted to do real work. You know, you're in business, you get a PC. Even that was a triumph. Even that was a triumph to say, yes, was. There, was a there was a class of people for whom the Mac is actually a useful tool. Like, just getting the artist to be... Because previously, it was just like, oh, come on, you're not going to buy this thing. It's like, it's like Fisher-Price. I mean, you can't do a thing with it. It's got these pictures on the screen. Is it for kids or something? You right. know, it's useless for everybody. And then finally, you know, desktop publishing and, and stuff like that came in. All right, so fine. I guess it's okay for those hippies. Yeah, right? we, had a, even, we had a Mac like SE like, oh. at our school that, that was the one of the, the only ones, and it was the Mac SE that we did the school newspaper and, like, the yearbook on. And people would line up waiting to use this thing. But, but people need to remember that, John. I think uh, that, that the Mac was off in this own, like there was a, a, you needed to have a mouse. Because there were a lot of people that didn't have a mouse. That was not weird. Oh, yeah. Uh, for, for, again, for years and yeah. years and years, PCs did not come with a mouse or any kind of pointing device. They just ignored what the Mac was doing. And then you know, the fact that Mac started to go into desktop publishing, and all right, so fine, there's some class of users that, that need to use this type of computer. But seriously, if you're going to have a computer for your house, obviously you get a PC. And don't worry about that mouse and GUI stuff. It's silly. Uh, and we have Windows anyway, and it's almost the same thing, right? So the advent of Windows you know, and the popularization of Windows was a, an admission that maybe there is something to this GUI thing. But Windows ran from DOS. Uh, and that was a whole other, uh, you know, thing there. Um, my, a quick aside on Windows and DOS. My favorite thing about 
Windows, the Windows and DOS battle. This is this is a slight tangent here, but you know, when I was a kid, it was all Windows versus the Mac, and as we all know, Windows came to dominate. But in the beginning, it was a bunch of DOS people installing Windows 3.1, which was like the first decent version that operated anything like a real GUI. It had overlapping windows and, and mouse support and stuff like that. And the way you would do it is you install Windows, but then when you booted your computer, you'd be at a DOS prompt. And what you would do with the DOS prompt is type Win, which was short for Windows. That was the, <laughs> the shorter version that launched Windows. Right. And the sheer psychological weight of millions of PC users typing the word win at their prompt <laughs> has always just sat on my shoulders to think, how much did this have to do with Windows winning the, the desktop battle? Because at that point, it was only geeks who were using any kind of computer. And we all knew there was this battle for the desktop. And here are these users typing win, 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 win. Millions of them every day, win, win. And just the repetition had to hammer into their head, you know, a psychological predisposition to think that Windows was going to win the Mac PC wars. That is the, perhaps the touchy-feeliest, hippy-dippiest explanation for why the Mac lost the war for the desktop that you could possibly imagine. But it has always not sat right with me. And I just wonder if there's someone inside Microsoft who decided to put in that little shortcut who was smiling as people were typing that. All right, but back, back to the GUI. So, so the Mac with the first major GUI, something that GUIs came with that command line things didn't really was that it came with like parts out of the box. You know, if you're writing a GUI app, you don't have to draw every pixel yourself. It came with a bunch of parts. If you want to draw a button, the operating system had a way to draw a button for you. If you wanted to draw a window, the operating system had a way to draw a window for you. It had scroll bars, cursors, menus, little pieces from which you can assemble your application. Right? But on top of that, Apple had their written guidelines. Like, here's how you assemble these parts to make something that is an appropriate Mac application. So first of all, definitely use these parts. Don't you know do a command line thing inside a window. But second of all, when you use the parts, here's how you do it. When you have a dialog box, put these two buttons on them. The OK button goes over here. The cancel button goes over there. The default button you know, should look like this. Make sure there always is a default button. All these sorts of guidelines. Uh, and they call it the HIG, the Human Interface Guidelines. Right. Now, the Human Interface Guidelines existed before the Mac, but they were more important for the Mac because... Here were these parts that you were going to assemble to make an application. You can assemble these parts in all sorts of different ways. So there was much more stricter guys, much stricter guidelines than you had, for example, for the Apple II, where they had some guidelines about you know keyboard commands and how input should look and stuff like that. But it wasn't like when you draw this on the screen, this should be this many pixels away from that. This should be over here. This should be aligned with that. It was just you know much stricter. And the guidelines that were there were an attempt to not only make Mac applications look like Mac applications, but make them all look like each other because they were trying to push the benefits of the GUI, which is not only that it's easier to use, but that once you learn how to use one Mac application, you can use any of them. You know, so this may be foreign and crazy for you, moving around this little thing with a cord hanging from it and a ball <laughs> on the bottom. But once you figure out how to do it once, the next application you use, you won't have that learning curve again, provided that we can get all the developers to make their applications look the same way, to behave the same way, to have similar, you know, menu structures, similar dialog boxes, so, so that you would see the benefit of the GUI. And then Apple could say, see, huh? GUI, pretty good, right? Now, during this time, you had people who saw the Mac and said, boy, this is awesome. I, it's clearly the way all computers are going to be. The Mac is awesome. I love the Mac. That would have been me as a kid and lots of other people, right? And their, their Apple itself had sort of a similar fervor to say, we want the Mac to succeed and we want to establish the GUI as the dominant paradigm because we have the best GUI and therefore we will win. Now, what happened during that time, I think, is sort of the, the fervor to establish the GUI got tangled up with religious adherence to the HIG because the Mac fans would be like, we love the GUI and if you're writing a GUI map, you got you to follow these guidelines 
And since we're, you know, geeks and uh, otaku would be a better term, we're just obsessive <laughs> about this stuff. You have to follow the Hig because here's the Hig. The Hig is our, you know, we held it like the Bible. The, the Hig is our Bible. If you want to join us, this is what you have to do. And if you don't follow the Hig, you're not helping the platform succeed, right? And, and that, that, you know, I think it's just for the people way back then who were in, in the midst of that revolution. They are the, the strongest adherents to the Hig is the Bible. You have to do what it says. And if you don't, you are, you're making a lesser application. But in reality, even Apple itself was never as rigid as these, as these people who were the, the rabid Apple fans were. Apple did want its platform to succeed, and they did say you should use the HIG, but they were, the G is for guideline, not gospel, right? If you look at like the original Mac that came out of the box in 1984, uh, one of which I had, from day one, Apple was not did not feel constrained by the human interface guidelines that it itself had written for the Mac. Because if you, if you look, the best example, like I was trying to think of an example from the original Mac that you look at and say, this does not follow the HIG. This is completely wrong. Not only is it wrong, but it's a, it's a, a giant mess. So if I had to think of one thing, I would pick the control panel. Do you remember what the original Macintosh control panel looked like? Yeah, I think I do. It was, it was you know, a one-screen thing, and it had all the little uh, icons inside of it, and you'd pick the one that you want to double-click it, and it would, it would sort of launch them as individual apps, right? No, you got to go way farther back. Farther I, will back? Put it, I will put it in the show notes. The original control panel. Oh, that's right. It was one, just one. It was, was one, one screen with, and you could pick the background with the little background widget, and you could right. pick the the. Fu- yeah, that was great. I missed that. That was so it simple. Was, it was one window, and there is pretty much not a standard control anywhere in this. I got to find a screenshot of this for the have, show it notes. Be, it will be in the show. I've got, found these all already. Oh, you already got it. Excellent. Yeah. So actually, I'll send it to you now. Send it to me now. I got to look at it right now. I remember that. Oh, those little backgrounds were so cool. And it had to, the, but there was a different, you had to, how did you change the sounds? You had to get that separate, what was the name of the app that let you put the howl sounds on there for the ejecting the track? Oh, that was much later, but yeah, there was the Kaboom and, and uh, Soundmaster yeah, and stuff and like Soundmaster. that. Soundmaster. This is, this is the original Macs out of, out of the box. No, no contamination from third-party applications. <laughs> this right. is what they're shipping with on day one. And the control panel, which is a pretty darn important piece of functionality, because it's the only place you can change the volume of the computer, change the mouse tracking, stuff like that, you know, it has no standard controls on it. It's got this crazy little thing with a mouse with lines coming from it that lets you change the mouse speed and it has a zero and a one button. What the heck do those mean? I guess one is faster than zero. For, for the keyboard key press speed, it has a little icon of a turtle. And then the numbers zero through four and the little icon of a rabbit. I guess the turtle is slow, the rabbit is fast. And then it has like a finger pressing a button and another series of numbers. None of these are standard controls. And they're nonsensical. Like this is the original, you know, this is the brush metal of its day. This Out of the gate, Apple is saying, we have these guidelines, but we are going to make an important part of the system totally disregard every single one. The only thing this thing has on it as a standard control is the title bar. The title bar has a closed box on it and it's a standard title bar. And maybe you could say the volume slider is a standard slider control. I don't this think it's so works. cool. Like, that is insane. And if Apple today came out in like Mac OS 10 line and they had some <laughs> app UI like that, people would flip out. Right? <laughs> so, this, this is my first example of how the adherence to the HIG is really sort of uh, uh, an illusion of the, the faithful and that Apple never felt constrained by it. Never, never, never felt constrained by it. Now, if we go forward through time, you know, to say, did, did they get this out of the system? Did, was there ever a golden era where they said, okay, now, you know, forget about that crazy stuff. Forget about the custom controls. Forget about these windows that make no sense but the funny icons that you can't figure out. We're gonna, everything's going to be standardized. Right. right? That's, that's the one, yeah. But I don't think they ever got there because, and mm-hmm. in, in like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fast forward to System 7, 
system six was didn't change too much from the other ones. It, it introduced color, but in a minimal manner. But system seven was the first OS with real color in it, right? Um, now, I've been, I'm always a fan of System 7 because they could have gone much crazier with the color in System 7. System 7 was the first one written, written from day one to support color, and they could have made everything like purple and blue or like, you know, like Windows, basically. They could have used garish color everywhere. Instead, what they did was they took the original look and they just highlighted it with just a little bit of color around the edges, like very subtle light color highlighting the edges of the existing black and white art. Do you have any screenshots? Yeah, well... I'll have I need to see these so we can talk about them. You don't remember what System 6 looks like? No, I remember. I remember System 7 Actually, very well. I don't have any good System 7 screenshots in, in the notes, but I will get one for you at the end of the show. But you know what System 7 looked like, right? I, oh, I loved System 7. That was my, that was my favorite Mac OS since up, up to now, up to present. Not including present, rather. Yeah. I, it, think, I think for me, Leopard is on par with System 7. Systems, well, Snow it, Leopard is better. For me, System 7 is tied up in the age that I was at the time. So the original System 7 is the operating system release I was most excited about and the one that I was most satisfied with, which really has no foundation in the facts because System 7 itself was a little bit buggy and you know there wasn't even a fonts folder until 7.1 and it was clearly shipped out early and it had a lot of, a lot of things not to recommend System 7, but because of where I was in my life at the time and how excited I was about it, that, that was the best. The, right? uh, the, our, our friends, the nerds in the chat room, have submitted it's a very nice screenshot system yes yeah. I, uh, it's in the, the, the guidebook gooey site i yeah. don't need i don't need to look at it because I, I system seven is burned in my brain yeah it feels good to look at it all right but even in system seven apple still you know they made new guidelines for color and everything and how things should look in a bunch of new controls but they still said yeah this doesn't apply to us i mean do you remember the cd player application mm-hmm. <laughs> right that was like the iTunes of its day, but even worse. Right? So first of all, the CD application, again, had no standard controls that I could discern anywhere on it. Every control was custom. And not only were they custom, they didn't even look like standard controls. So the buttons looked like physical buttons right. on, on an actual CD player. And it looked like there was a little deck for stuff to go in. There was lots of recesses and, and highlights and stuff like that. Now, let me just post, paste this in the chat room because people might want to take a look at it too. But not only was it crazy looking, even the title bar, by the way, even the title bar is not standard. The closed widget was not standard. Complete custom UI. But on top of that, you could change the color of the thing. You could pick black or like 100% saturated red. Or I think the other colors were yellow or blue or green. You could change the entire GUI to some incredibly garish color. And again, if, if they came out with a version of iTunes and said, now it comes in colors and you can pick from this pop-up menu and change the color of the whole app. And by the way, there's not a standard control anywhere to be found in the app. People would go nuts. Yeah. And this is basically the equivalent of iTunes. It was the audio player of its day. There was no MP3s. This was playing audio CDs from your CD drive, which is, uh, you know, advanced technology. Uh, and, and the rest of the OS was, you know, fairly standard, but they never felt any compunction from just completely going off the map to do whatever the heck they wanted with no rhyme or reason. Like, why did the CD player look like that? Was it a better application because of that? You know? Uh, was there some reason that it had to be non-standard? It's... The Apple of today has always been... the uh, Apple's always been like that. It's not a new phenomenon. That You make a great point, and I'd, I'd forgotten about some of these these things, and, and that's true. They now, always have the, been kind of weird. Here's the height of Apple's insanity, I think. If you could say today that they're not as bad as they had once been, this would be the, the peak. The peak was when they were coming, doing the, the, the Copeland project, which was going to be the next generation Mac OS, but it was modern oh, yeah. and everything. This was the original Mac OS 8. Apple eventually released something called Mac OS 8, but it's not this. This was their original project for this. And they had a technology in there called the Appearance Manager, 
which would let you change the appearance of all the standard controls to whatever the heck you wanted. And Apple itself made a bunch of themes for the appearance manager. And their themes for the appearance manager were crazy. Like, they were clearly just trying to show off what it was that they could do with the appearance manager. Let me paste some more URLs into the chat here. So I don't know if people remember these, but one of them was called Gizmo. And Gizmo Gizmo <laughs> had made the window border into squiggly lines. And uh, it was, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. it it's obviously, obviously something you would not want to use. Like it's just, you know, this is clearly for kids or something like that. Oh, right? yeah. that's, what, that's what people would say about it. The, the top widgets look like, uh, you know, a, a spike with a bunch of colored blocks stuck onto it. And the borders were striped and the scroll bars were red. Right. And then they had made one called high tech, which looked all black and dark and blade runnery and all the right. folders were black that yeah, actually looks looks like what they had in in Linux on the Enlightenment uh, window manager yes, for yes. years. The, the high tech one does look like a, a Linux scheme slot, but the key feature, the, the the technology in question here was that they were saying we're going to build into the operating system a way for you to change how every single thing looks. Now yeah. look how far they had come from saying every Mac application has to look and behave the same to saying, mm-hmm. okay, I think people get the GUI now, but but you know let's let you change anything you want. Right now, Mac OS eight Copeland did not ship. Instead, they shipped a evolution of Mac OS 7, or System 7, that they eventually renamed Mac OS 7.6. They eventually renamed Mac OS 8, and they added a lot of these technologies to it. So the appearance manager actually shipped in the real Mac OS 8, which was just a, an evolution of System 7. And so you could do you know, themes and stuff uh, for it. In fact, if you, if you managed to get your hands on the Apple themes, they would work in the shipping actual Mac OS 8, and you could run them and change your things to look like that. There's another one they did called Drawing Board, actually, which looks classier, but again, crazy. It looked like a drafting, uh, a drafting board type of look, where hmm. a line, it's like someone had drawn your windows on a drafting board and done that thing where you make the lines go farther. Over, than, yeah, farther, yeah. I'll paste that one in the chat room, too. Man, you miss out if you're not in the chat room. People keep asking, how, how do you do this? You go to 5x5.tv slash live, or slash audio if you just just want audio in an HTML5 player without flash and you click the little chat button or if if you're a geek then you can launch your favorite IRC client go to freenode.net and join room uh 5 by 5 yeah and apple's efforts in these areas were not in a vacuum like there was a thriving community of third party theming things and that either used the appearance manager that apple had built or did their own sort of thing with you know memory patching and all the great things that we did back in the days of classic Mac OS X. Uh, the big one was called Kaleidoscope, where people make Kaleidoscope themes and Kaleidoscope could change any part of the GUI. Uh, so there was a huge culture surrounding changing the GUI to look like all sorts of crazy things. And it's not just from, but like I said, it's not just from third party. Apple built the, the plumbing for this into the operating system and planned to build it into the next generation operating system. When they couldn't, they just ported it to their regular operating system, which continued to limp on for many years after that. Uh, now, the message about this, uh, I think, was made clear in this book that I have that I think very few people have. It was published back in 1991. It's called Tog on Interface. Uh, you know who Tog is? I, re- I remember Tog. I don't have this book. Yeah, so this is Bruce Tognazzini. I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He was, uh, uh, I don't know if he was head of the human interface group, but he was influential in human interface in Apple. He'd been in Apple for years, since the Apple II uh, and he's the one who put together the HIG and uh, did all the user interface testing and stuff like that. So he wrote a book sort of outside the auspices of Apple uh, saying, here's what I have to say about interface design. But he used examples from his Apple work all the time in the book. So I guess it had to have some sort of Apple blessing or cooperation. Um, it was published by Addison Wesley. I'll, I'll 
put try to put a link to that in the show notes, but I think it's out of print. Um, so on page 157 of this book, he's got a little diagram uh, and a, a paragraph or two about what he calls multiplex meanings. And he shows, first he shows a bunch of little house icons for HyperCard. I don't know how many people remember HyperCard, but there was the concept of going home in, in a HyperCard stack. And he showed these 17 different icons that HyperCard came with for going home. All sorts of different sizes of houses. Houses with chimneys, two-story house, one-story house, house from the side, you know, house from a different angle. And he said that it's not too much to ask the user to recognize all these as being houses. Like, once you figure out that house means home, which may or may not be a hurdle to get over, when you see the little house icon anywhere in a hypercard stack, you click it and you go home. And it doesn't matter, oh, well, this house has a chimney, but the last one didn't. I have no idea what this house is going to do when I click it. No, you recognize it as a house. Uh, And the other example he gave was from System 7. He showed six or seven different puzzle piece icons, uh, which in System 7 were for system extensions, things that changed the way the system worked. Uh, Most of them are kind of hacky, but for example, a, a system extension for uh, changing the appearance, like Kaleidoscope would be partially a system extension or drivers and stuff like that. And they were puzzle piece icons because they were, you know, fitting together to change the way the system works, whatever. Whatever metaphor they were using, they were, they were puzzle pieces. <laughs> but there were many of them. There was just puzzle piece facing this way, puzzle piece with a hole in the bottom and a, and a tab on the top, puzzle piece facing sideways, it, all sorts of different directions, but all of them clearly recognizable as puzzle pieces. Right. And the message was that things don't have to look identical they just have to be identifiable as the things they're supposed to be. So once you figure out the puzzle piece icon means extension, you don't have to be a slave to only use the standard puzzle piece icon because if you don't, people have no idea what it, what it means and it will make the system worse, right? And he had a little quote at the end of this. Remember, this is 1991, so this is ages ago in technology-wise. But what he said was, as, bandwidth of u- as the bandwidth of user interfaces increases, he put bandwidth in quotes because he's kind of just talking <laughs> as technology increases. <laughs> right. these, kind of, these kinds of multiplexings will become more and more practical. So what he's saying is that as we can make nicer icons, as the fidelity of on-screen images and the fidelity interface increases, there'll be even more things that we can do that make the appearance different but are, still leaves the items identifiable as what they're supposed to be. All right? So now... Here we are today with, you know, the retina displays on, on the iPads and millions of colors on everything and, you know, huge, huge bandwidth in his parlance of, of the interface. So we can make the appearance vary to crazy degree. Uh, but the same question applies now as it applied then. What's the point? Why are you varying the appearance? So what, why have seven different puzzle pieces? Why have 12 different kinds of houses? Why have 50 different things that do the same thing but look slightly different? Um, and there's a couple of reasons for this. First, obviously, is fashion. And I don't think you can dismiss that. Fashion is a valid reason to change the appearance of something. Fashion has changed. You know, who's to say what's the purpose of fashions in, in people's clothes? You know, long hair, short hair, long skirts, short skirts, tight pants, loose-fitting pants, you know, stripes, plaid, plain things. Fashion changes, and the function of fashion is not it doesn't do anything for you. It's just, it's just part of the human experience. And so, so why shouldn't fashion be part of the computing experience as well? So if, if someone decides some year that the fashion of Mac OS X is going to be different than it was last year, and we think we're moving from the 60s into the 70s or the 80s, or you know, using uh, the equivalent fashion errors, why not? Right? I think that's, that is reason alone to say, yes, you can change the appearance of, of the user interface purely on the basis of, of fashion. Uh, a correlator to this is kind of mood. Mood gets more into objective measures where you can have a look of an interface that's frantic or sort of 
you know, exciting. Like an example I would give is that Windows XP blue theme. Does anyone remember what that was in the chat room? Like when XP first came out, you could put it in a classic Windows 95 look, but the, the sort of native uh, Windows XP look that was in all the screenshots was really saturated blue yeah. with a, a green background. And it looked very different from the old one. Right? It was a little chunkier and different yeah, and, overall. And that was a very different mood than Windows 95, which was mostly gray. So whatever Microsoft was trying to say, they were, they were conveying a message with their UI. This is more exciting. Windows XP, it's, it's not the staid old Windows 95 they used to that was all gray. It's, it's, you know, it's new. It's shiny. You know, it's plastic fantastic. The whatever first, they were trying to say. The first thing I would do whenever I would get on an XP box, and I Switch still have a couple of them here in the studio that we use for different things. Immedi- immediately, you switch it back to classic. Immediately. Yeah, even the metrics were different. Like the windows, were, the window title bar was thicker. Yeah, than, terrible. Than the, the blue theme. It wasn't, so, and it clearly was not an improvement. Nobody liked that. Some people did because Nobody. they just thought it was new or interesting. Well, but shame on so, them. So, so let's compare this to a different mood uh, from uh, an OS vendor, which is uh, Next Step. Next Step was just gray as far as the eye could see. Everything was gray or black. It looked like, you know, a banker's suit, right? And these things, it sounds like I'm just talking about fashion again, but I'm not because there's a mood to the operating system that affects the people using it. If you make something bright and shiny and blinking and everything, that has a different effect on the user than if you make something that's sort of calm or soothing, right? Now, in today's market for computers, this happens on an app-by-app basis sometimes. Like, for example, games tend to have more frantic UIs, but you know the menus make noises when you mouse over them and things are animated and there's a background going on and there's music and stuff like that. That's appropriate for a game. Versus the other end of the spectrum are like these uh, uh, Merlin's favorite distraction-free writing environments where the UI right. can just go away entirely and just simple, calm screen, just your words in front of you to help you think. So this is an interface that's not changing based on fashion. It's changing because they think making the thing look different will make the user feel different and make the user perform differently. Um, and the whole OS has that, you know, can do that as well. Now, with the whole OS, it's different than on an app-by-app basis because the whole OS has to strike a balance. They can't make a UI that looks like the interface to a PopCap game because people will not use that on a daily basis, right? Mm-hmm. But they also probably don't want to make an interface that looks like the old Next Step where just everything is super boring all the time. Because one of the important features of all of these things with the UI is like, you know, why did Apple make that CD player look like that? Why did the control panel have the little turtle and the hair icons on it? Because sometimes you do things, this is, you know, a third thing, fashion, mood, Sometimes you just do them for fun because, hey, let's have some fun here. That when I remember seeing that little turtle in the hair and I had figured out as like a 10-year-old, oh, that means faster and slower. Right. It's fun to, to discover that. It's fun to have a, a CD a player point. that you can change to bright red. Because I always made mine red because I thought it looked the best. A lot of other people kept theirs as black. You know, it's like, what color do you keep your CD player? It's just a music player. Why not make it fun? Right? Now... The, the limitations of all these changes of, you know, doing things for fashion or for mood or just for the heck of it is, are we straying too far away from the user's ability to figure out what it is? Can people still identify where the clothes box is? Do they know that this is a button? Do they know that you can press this? And we've seen instances where they've gone too far, like the uh, QuickTime 4 player. Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. It was one of the first brush metal things. Yeah, they had a volume metal. control that was a dial. Like you, like a thumb dial, like on a physical device where you, it was a dial that was Im- embedded in the device, and just a, a small arc of the circle would stick above the top, <laughs> and you would rub it with your thumb, right? So they put this in a UI, a picture of a dial that you were looking at head on, that you had to like scrub your mouse across to turn the <laughs> dial. It was not obvious that that's what you were supposed to do with that thing, because no one had ever seen a control like that before. And I guess you could kind of figure out that it was a dial, but you weren't sure how to manipulate it with your mouse per- cursor, you know? Which touch UIs is easier, because I think if you put that in front of 
a kid as a touchy why they might just swipe it with their finger and figure it out. But with a mouse, we weren't thinking quite the same thing there. So you can definitely go too far uh, in that direction. Now, fast forwarding to Mac OS 10, right? All the things that we just described from System 7 and the original Mac OS and stuff like that, we've seen in Mac OS 10, and I would say to lesser degrees. So they did the brush metal thing, uh, but it wasn't a custom control. You can make your own brush metal windows, and no one really understood why you would make something brush metal. Did it have to do with mood? Was it just fashion? Was there was it more fun to do brush metal? People made their own decisions about that. Uh, but eventually, Apple reined it back in and said, well, okay, it's clear that the advantages of brush metal, whatever they may be, are outweighed by the disadvantages of people just using it willy-nilly, so we'll bring it back down. So I think Leopard was the, when they unified everything. That was perhaps the most staid they have ever been with user interface elements, where they unified all their applications to a single appearance and uh, they hadn't started going off in weird iOS directions yet, so it was kind of like a quiet period for, for the UI. But Mac OS X introduced a new uh, feature to, uh, to user interface, something that people usually don't talk about because you can't see it that well in screenshots. Uh, Mac OS X, this is an example of uh, a, a TOG's increased bandwidth. It, 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 beyond appearance, it added animation. So this is a, another characteristic of user interface that doesn't show up in screenshots. But now we've suddenly we have the technology to make things move. And how they move would define how they felt to you. You know, it's the difference between a picture of a cat and seeing a cat walk. A cat feels different once you know how it moves, right? So once animation became a valid vector for uh, innovation, Apple threw it on top of Mac OS X and said, oh, for example, we're going to do uh, the genie to a dock. We're going to make the window animate in a smooth way down to the dock. Now, that was whimsical, right? It was fun, and it was interesting, and people all oohed and odd when they first saw it, but it actually also served a purpose. It lets you know where the heck your window went, because if you click that minimize widget, and you have no idea that when you minimize windows, they go to the dock, just, boom. You, you click the, the window widget, and the window disappeared, and you'd be like, where'd my window go? Mm-hmm. And if you didn't notice that a tiny white square had appeared in your dock, you know, maybe you wouldn't notice that. And then the dock itself animates as well. It moves. The dock slowly expands to accept the window going into it. So the genie thing was like a great example of firing on all cylinders in terms of the UI. It was whimsical, it was fun, it set a mood, and it, it served an important function that you could not do without it. Right? And with the advent of core animation in later versions of Mac OS X, animation is just everywhere now. And, and in most cases, animation does all those things, continues to do all those things. It conveys information that's important to the user, it's fun and whimsical and interesting, and it sets the mood for the operating system. This is a smooth place where things glide from place to place and they don't jump from one place to the other. It's not, it's not garish, it's not frantic or off-putting it's just it's relaxing and calm and casual and things glide like water it puts me into the flow right uh this is this is an example of things don't have to look the same to behave to look exactly the same like so for the genie effect you can do it where it squishes the window down into a little funnel you can do the one where it scales Uh, i'm sure they had other effects they got rid of i think there used to be one there where it sheared it all these different animation effects don't confuse people in terms of, well, what does it mean when the window scales down to the dock versus when it oozes down there like it's being squeezed into a genie bottle? It means the same thing. People don't get confused about it at all. Now, here's some more examples from today that, that have people angry and freaking out. Uh, when they move the window widgets in iTunes, do you remember that? I think it was like iTunes 10. Yeah. Or in the, is it in the mini player or in all the players? Uh, in some, some versions, of uh, uh, some modes, the window widgets in iTunes are stacked vertically like stoplights instead of horizontally like they are every place else. Uh, now, this is an example of where 
if you were to ask somebody and they say, where's the close widget on the iTunes window? They would look for the red dot and they would find it, right? Where's the minimize widget? Well, the yellow dot and they would find it. You know, it's clearly identifiable as the close, minimize, and uh, zoom widgets. They're just in different places, right? But the downside is that those widgets, changing their appearance would have been fine. They kept the appearance, but they changed the position. And what that does is it breaks your muscle memory. So when you reach for like the minimize widget, it's not where it used to be. Or when you reach for the zoom box to change it from mini player to, to the other player, it's not where it used to be. So you end up reaching with your mouse to the wrong spot briefly and then correcting. And if they moved all the widgets there, eventually your muscle memory would retrain itself. But if you just move it in one application, you're never going to retrain your hand. Your hand is going to be retrained for all the, the other windows that are normal. And when you hit the iTunes window, you will forever be going to the slightly the wrong place and going down. It's, right. like pe- it's like a little pebble in your shoe. Yeah. You know, it starts off as not a big deal, but eventually you're like, oh, for the love of God, put the thing back where it's supposed to be. This, <laughs> this is why I was so annoyed by the, moving this thing. It's because what's the advantage? Did you, did you change the appearance to change the mood? No. Is it, is it whimsical and fun? No. All you did was put it in a different place so that when I try to click on it, I miss slightly. And I'm never going to learn it because every other widget is in a different place. So I, I applied that hack that puts them back into the right place. This would be an example of a change that not many people were bothered by you didn't you know you heard a little bit of noise from people here and there but people just got used to it but i would say this is this is an example of the worst possible change that apple can do because it had none of the advantages of changing the appearance or any of the other ways that GUIs work and, and a disadvantage that just you know grows with time and grates on you all right let me stop you there we're going to do a second sponsor break this one is is pretty cool this is by mailchimp but it's it's a, a special thing they've built called chimp kit have you heard about this john maybe you're unplugged you should unplug now I did unplug, and now I'm back. Okay. You heard about this chimp kit? I have. This is very cool. So if it, one of the problems that you have as an iOS developer is getting in touch with the people who are actually using and downloading your apps. You, pretty much you can't. You don't know who's using and buying your apps. Apple insulates you from that. And that, that's certainly a good thing for the consumer. But what if the consumer actually wants to hear about the stuff that you're working on. How do you tell them? Well, you have to send them out to an external website. They have to sign up with a form, whatever. That's a mess. And so this is MailChimp's way of trying to address this issue. And uh, they've created this thing called Chimp Kit. And basically, it's a drop-in. I mean, you can customize it and style it any way you want, but uh, it's a drop-in component that you, you, you put right into your app. All the code is there. It's all open sourced. And what it does is it allows you to keep in touch with your users uh, by providing them with a simple sign-up form so that they can get your newsletter. And MailChimp also lets you have 2,000 subscribers for free. So, so not only is the Chimp Kit free, but you can have 2,000 subscribers for free uh, and, and integrate this into your app so that that way people can just, with, with a, a couple taps, they're signed up, they're getting your newsletter, they're hearing what other cool apps you're building, you can get directly in touch with them. So if you're building an iOS app, You've got to use this. You've just got to put it in. Uh, you can find out more about it by going to MailChimp.com slash ChimpKit. I want to see this in every iOS app now because there's a lot of times, you know, how do you find out that Angry Birds Rio came out if you forget to go to the site every day? You wouldn't know. That's all I'm saying. I love the fact that they prefix everything with Chimp. Like back in the old days, every Mac application <laughs> had Mac, Mac Write, Mac Paint, Mac yeah. Draw, Mac This, and now it's Chimp. <laughs> Chimp this, That's chimp right. kit. Exactly. Chimp, everything is it's a valid everything prefix is for chimp. anything. A valid prefix for any kind of product, <laughs> if your company name is MailChimp. <laughs> yeah. All, All right. right. So the last little bit I've got on the UI thing is the the most recent example that I'll, is the uh, 
the iCal in Lion, which uh, like, can leaks. we can we talk about this? Yeah, because it leaked all over. I just pasted a, a URL into the chat room. It's an Ars Technica uh, article that shows the very top what iCal looks like in the second developer preview of Mac OS. Uh, I haven't installed that yet. What are you running that on? Are you rebooting into it? What are you doing? Yeah, I, I reboot into it. I have another drive dedicated just uh-huh. for Lion. If I had more machines, I wouldn't have to do that. But yeah. So people who aren't looking at the screenshot right now, the iCal in Lion developer preview 2 the top of the window where it's normally like the title bar and the toolbar, that whole thing is made to look like leather. And underneath the toolbar, there's a big, thick row of what looks like a ropey white stitching going right. across. That's, the, that's what holds the paper into the leather binding. Right. And then the paper portion, like where the calendar is, it looks like a, a tear-off type calendar where yeah. you've torn off a few pages beforehand and there's that little scrim of, of paper that didn't get torn off all the way. <laughs> right. Right. So the word for this, I, I should have put this in my notes, but is it, someone else will say it. Is it skeuomorphic, something like that? The, the word for making a, uh, an, an interface look like a physical thing that, uh, that it really has no reason to correspond with. So, it, you know, it, this, let's make it look like a physical calendar. Let's make the user interface look like a physical calendar, uh, even though it is not a physical calendar and has no reason to be bound by the same things. Now, here's what I'm going to say about the crazy iCal, whether whether it actually ships in the final version of the operating system or not. So first, let's look at what they did. Did they move anything around? Not really. The window widgets are in the same place. There are buttons. They're the same. There's a tab control, which is the same as the standard tab controls. The search box is in the same place, uh, same size and shape. So this is not going to mess with you in terms of, I don't know where the controls are. Where is the search box? Where is the closed widget? How do I change view? Everything is exactly where you would expect it in the same size you would expect it. They didn't make the target smaller. They didn't make the, the things bigger, so they're taking up more room. So there are no problems there. Uh, now, is, is it whimsical and fun? Well, that really depends on your point of view. Uh, I, I would definitely say it's whimsical. <laughs> it's, you know, wh- whether or not it's fun, uh, I, I don't know. But what, what it comes down to, I think, is the reason people are screaming about iCal is that if you think it's ugly, then you don't like it. Right? So it's not a functional problem. And it's not even that they're spoil sports and don't want interfaces to be fun because there are plenty of Apple interfaces that are fun where people think it's appropriate or interesting. But if you think if you think it's ugly or if you think iCal is a serious application and it should not be this whimsical and interesting, those are two reasons why you might not like this. And it's tough for Apple to make judgments on that because Apple's sort of the one that dictates the the mood of the application. They say, we want, we want calendaring to be fun. So we're going to make our application, you know, more fun and interesting because we think that's what people want. And Apple probably has some support in that area. They say, look what we did on the iPad. All our apps on the iPad are sort of fun and whimsical and sometimes look like physical applications. And hey, people seem to love those. Uh, So why don't we do the same thing on the Mac? Maybe it's a different user base. Maybe they misjudged the way most people react to this. Or maybe they'll just stick to their guns, ignore the the cries uh, for, you know, uh, against this look and just ship it and say, you know, it's not the end of the world. People got used to it. You, the first time you show a new Mac user this thing, they'll say, oh, wow, look at that. And then from that point on, whenever they see the weird application with a title bar that looks like the outside of a football, they'll say, oh, that's iCal. Maybe, maybe that's what they're going to do is define an, a brand for this. And, and you know, from this point on, this is way be, be, the, be the way that iCal looks. Or maybe they'll change their mind in another major version. But in the end of the day, I don't think this change is any more radical than any of Apple's own official appearance schemes, than any kaleidoscope scheme, than the original 
control panel on the original Mac from day one, it's not any worse than any of the other things I've done. And in fact, I think it's better in many respects in that at the very least, they're not breaking a UI that works. They're not making the controls so far away from what they normally right. look like that people don't understand what they do. They've just simply chosen a fashion that people may or may not agree with. Now, if there, was, if there was a checkbox in there that said that you could revert back just by checking a box and switch to a non-leather-bound version of the calendar, would you? I don't use iCal, so I have no opinion one way or the other. I'm, I think I probably would because I think it's ugly, right? And that's a subjective yeah. thing based on fashion. I just simply think it's ugly and off-putting. Now, people will, ask, it, people will ask, John, what do you use instead of iCal? I use Google Calendar okay. because I can share the calendars with all the rest of the family and we can update each other's calendars. And it's you, with can, me you can use iCal to talk to a Google Calendar. With, I know. Okay. I think I actually do have iCal set up to sync with my Google Calendar, but I simply never launch it. Okay. Uh, maybe when I get my own iPad, I will start using iCal check, more. I, I check out BusyCal. Yeah, I've heard good things about those things. I'm not, That's I'm what not I'm a big, using. Yeah. I'm not a big calendaring guy. The only thing I'm using my calendar for is to keep up with like family events of you know when we have to pick up the kids or you know uh, when we have appointments or things and stuff like that. What I so don't, I, what I don't like, the only thing I don't like about that, I, I agree that it is kind of ugly, but I feel like the interface might grow on me a little bit. I just don't like the little the little shim of paper that's left. I don't like like that really bugs me seeing the little torn off remnants. That yeah, doesn't because I like you know I, what I like about Mac OS ten is that it, it's clean, it's nice, it's still it has a bit of personality to it without being over the top. And then you look at this and you're like, why why leave a little ripped piece of paper? I just don't like that because I in real life if I had that little ripped piece of paper, I'd go get a little you know safety pin or pencil eraser and, and and remove that. I don't like that. I don't like I don't like notebooks where you tear stuff off if the perforation isn't really good. That's one of the reasons why I really like these like the field notes calendar. The field notes calendar is great because it just has those two staples, and when you rip off the the month calendar. There's nothing left. You don't have that binding up. That just bugs me. You can get built up on the staples too eventually. No, no, because these staples are pretty firm and they they actually stand out in a way. They're very strong, rigid staples that they used. So you actually have space there and nothing would get stuck under there. So, you know, there's a big overlap between people who have vague sort of OCD tendencies and people who are heavily into computers because computers are sort of that one place in the world where you can make things just so perfect. It's, yeah. not, it's not it's not a physical world. So you can you can align things perfectly, for example, if you're into like aligning pixels or whatever. Right. You can erase things completely, which you can't do on real paper. And so people who are drawn to that because they get upset in real life by things that are physically imperfect were drawn to the to computers at a young age and now are the most enthusiastic computer users. So when you give them an interface that brings the things they didn't like about the physical world into the, their formerly clean place, yeah, they'll get upset too. I don't think that's a valid reason for Apple not to do this because the vast majority of people are not inclined like that and they'll just think it's cute and never give it a second thought after, after that, right? All right. So I think that is not a, a reason for them to say, well, you know, we are we are violating this perfect space that previously was a place where we these limitations didn't apply. If if the the entire world were like you and I, then yes, they would they would have to get rid of it. But the entire world is not like you and I. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think a I lot think of people would think. You know, I I really people do listening think, to the show will agree that yeah, yeah. <laughs> but people, just a regular regular person or a regular human is going to look at this and say, "Oh, that's cool. It looks just like a calendar, man. It looks just like a calendar." Yeah, or not notice it at all, which is the 
the the case that would be most common. For example, if I was to put this thing in front of my parents, they would it would take. I would have to ask them, like, do you see anything? What do you think about this? Do you see anything different? First, they wouldn't even recognize that the window title bar is different. Right. Like, they would just think, I'll, uh, you know, it wouldn't occur to them that there is a standard window title bar and this <laughs> one is not standard. And second, if you try to get them to see those little pieces of paper, forget it. Like, and when you did point it out, they'd be like, oh, so what am I supposed to be seeing here? So yeah, it looks like paper. paper. Whatever. Like, so here, so here's whatever. something. In, in the past, when Apple did, for the most part, when they came out with different styles of of window chrome like brushed metal brushed aluminum uh you you could use that as a developer you could say i want a brushed metal look for my app you you know you could make an app that used brushed metal and uh you you would be you would be defamed by your user group but i mean you could you could do that do you do you think that these Unique styles are are going to be. I'm not. I I haven't looked at the the Lion SDK at all. Do you know if these are going to be available? Have you heard any discussion of this? Like, if I wanted to make an app, could I grab the leather binding and use that as a look? I think I think brush metal is an aberration. Like I said, all, all the previous cases where they made custom UIs, like the CD player thing, or the you know any other application that looked different, that was not available to third party developers. Brush metal was one of the first times you know in, in the Mac OS X era they got completely got rid of theming, right? But they experimented with all sorts of new UIs, like that drawer. Remember drawers popping out of yeah, things and yeah. sheets? And it was the first time they'd gone back to the drawing board and said, are there some new parts that we can put in our parts bin? And one of those parts was a window that looks different. And that was a change because in the past, there had not been such radical different looks in the standard sort of toolbox for building things. And I think they decided that that experiment was not successful and mm. then even though Apple thought they knew when using brush metal was appropriate, if you put it in the toolbox, it gets used far and wide and in ways that Apple didn't think it was appropriate. So I think they are back to keeping the toolbox pared down and most definitely not providing you with a way to make the top of your window leather, not providing you with a way to make it wood like in GarageBand. I don't mm. know if GarageBand is still like that, but Apple's applications, Photo Booth, you know, even, even things like iMovie, you know, they will do custom controls that they feel are appropriate or even custom windows entirely that they feel are appropriate for their applications, but they will not provide third-party libraries for other people to do that. If you want to do it for your app, feel free to make your own custom control. But if they make it as easy as a checkbox, then every single, you know, a 99-cent shareware thing or whatever in the Mac App Store is going to have leather window and it'll just be a plague of leather windows in, in places where, where it's totally not appropriate. So I don't know whether that's part of the standard UI, but I'm going to say... 99.9 repeating percent chance that that is not a standard control that people can use, nor will it ever be. I think that's a reasonable decision. Okay. So, uh, one last point on this. So, uh, Gruber has this talk that he gave a while back. Uh, I don't know if he still gives it about uh, the Hig is dead. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I think it was uh, one of the early C4s he gave that talk originally. Uh, and despite... Uh, I don't know if, if you just hear the title, you think that, that that talk agrees with what I just talked about or disagrees with it. But either way, I think it's just a question of looking at the same issue from two different sides. The first thing I'm going to say is that the HIG is not dead in the sense that it's gone. Yeah, I will put this in the show notes. You can link to the Mac OS X Human Interface Guidelines. They're on Apple's website. You can look at them and you can read them. And they are every bit as fussy as they have ever been. This is how big buttons should be. This is how far apart they should be, down to the pixel. This is how you should align things. These are the labels you should put on button names. Right. These are the type of dialogues you should have, and this is the image you should have in the corner of it. Everything. This, these are the kind of windows that should have minimized widgets, active and inactive. and clo- It is every bit as detailed as it used to be, and if anything, it is more detailed. Uh, but what, what the, the Hig is Dead is talking about is basically the idea 
which I, I don't think was ever a real thing, but the idea in people's heads that there was a time when the human interface guidelines were gospel and you had to follow them and that Apple itself religiously adhered to them and now we we're in the bad, the bad times when Apple has gone crazy, that is completely false. There was never a time like that. Apple has always been completely willing to do whatever the heck it wants with its UIs and try any possible thing. And during that time, it was also still encouraging people not do as I say, not as I do. Make your UI standard, but we're going to experiment. And that has always been the case with Apple, and it is to this day. So I don't think there is a time in the past, this golden era of UI consistency. And if anything, the recent unification in Leopard was one of the uh, calmest periods in, in, the, in, the, in the Mac UI that has ever existed. So... I would definitely would not have gone with the Hig is dead as a title because it seems to lend credence to the idea that there was a time when the Hig was more important than it is now. And I think the entire history of Apple has shown that they've always behaved the same way in this regards. And if anything, the wildest possible period was that brief period when they were considering doing the appearance manager, but they bailed at that at the last minute anyway. They left the software in there that you could use to, uh, to theme with third-party themes, and they never actually shipped their own themes. They just sort of leaked out of Apple, but they never really committed to that. So I would say the Hig is alive and well and behaves exactly as it always behaved. And Apple is behaving the way it has always behaved. And users, as always, are behaving the way they always behave, making a big fuss over small changes and forgetting about things that have happened in the past. All that said, the new iCal is still ugly, and I hope they change it. <laughs> and, that, you know, and that's something else that, you know, that there's still a lot of time. They could. I doubt they will. I think this is clearly the direction that they're going for all their apps. Yeah, dude, I was thinking about the previous ugly app. I really hated. I think this was in Leopard too. The way they changed the mail UI. Mm. Remember that with those sort of lozenge shaped yeah. blue lozenge shaped buttons? And not because you know, not because it was bad UI, but because I thought it was ugly. Just plain <laughs> coming out. I thought these these are ugly buttons. They're still there. I don't like how they look. Now they I think they changed them a little bit. They're not the blue capsules that they used to. No, be. they're not blue, but they're they're still the same sort of strange. Yeah. So that's it's it's ironic that the most noise you hear on the internet is about the things that people find ugly. That there's no actual problem with the UI in terms of understandability or functionality, but just because it, it's ugly and it grates on people. Well, that Versus, says that says a lot though about the current state of user interface development. Is that pretty much all of these things are are relatively usable. They are providing a consistent interface, and and now it's really down to. To, to things like that. But what I don't like is that you're for, these things are forced upon you and it's not like they're a third-party app where you can look at it and say, oh, I'm not going to get that app. I'm not going to buy it. And you can sort of punish the developer for straying too far from the norm by not buying their app uh, and, and create change and affect change in that way. It's like this way, of course, I want all the new things that Lion has to offer. And now I've got to use this crappy-looking calendar app and I don't have any say in it. See, we should have done the quick pick Mac App Store rejection thing because that would have been a point on that is that, mm. you know, that it, it's all well and good. But when there are no alternatives to the application, then people are forced to use. You're your forced to app. use it. You're forced to support it. And, and then this is the one this is the one thing. And, and you touched on this, but I'll just kind of reiterate it. The more Apple does this, the more it encourages developers to do it, the more it it, oh, it says this is OK. Right. I, I, see, I don't maybe uh, maybe developers are encouraged by that, but. But again, from, from from day one, developers could have looked at what Apple did in the control panel and said, well, they feel no compunction about making completely custom UI, so I'm right, going to do a completely custom UI in my word processor. But I think it, that the real, the real gateway yeah. is when you provide them a checkbox in Interface Builder to make your window brush metal. Then the floodgates open. Because yes, 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 you're right. You're right. But at the same time... 
there are a lot of developers out there who are going to say, ah, the regular macOS interface, that's boring. Now they're doing this other cool stuff and there's all these iOS apps out there. I'm going to, I'm going to do my own thing now. And, um, you know, it just, I feel like the proliferation of this is going to, this, this encourage, I feel like Apple's encouraging it by doing this. That's what I mean. I think it's been around forever, though, because the thing is, there's a high bar to doing a custom UI like this. You have to have artists on staff or be an artist yourself. It's mm-hmm. not like you can say, I'm going to draw my own leather pattern. It will look terrible. And no matter how bad, you know, no matter how little taste you have, you will recognize that it looks terrible. You will say, Apple did something that looks like nice in leather. I scribbled in Photoshop for five minutes and this looks horrible. Right. And the market will decide that for you because Mac applications are supposed to look nice. But there's been a long, long history, especially on Mac OS X, when the quote unquote bandwidth of the UI has been so, so high of making completely custom UIs that look awesome. Like, think of something like Delicious Library, where the entire UI is basically a, you know, a drawing of uh, a bunch right. of books okay. on shelves. But they were so cool and so innovative and so good that Apple actually had to hire their guys away. That's how right. good but, they were. But, but that's but what most... Apple wants. Apple basically wants, they say, we would love it if you had artists that are as, enta- as talented as our artists are, or more talented, yeah. and you made your apps look awesome. That's what we want. But they're not going to come out and say, you should make a custom UI for your app. At WWDC, they're going to say, use standard controls. Do not use custom controls. Make your things. St-. And what they're trying to say is, look, if, if you're going to listen to me, when, if I, when I say use standard controls, what you hear is always use standard controls. That means you realize you do not have the ability to make good-looking controls. And if you do have the ability to make good-looking custom controls, I know you're going to ignore me anyway. So the message that they have to say is use standard controls because... The, the subtext is, trust me, you cannot make apps as awesome as we, as we make them. You are not an artist. You are a developer. Do not attempt what we are doing here. We have an entire staff of people dedicated to doing this stuff. If you try to do it, you will fail. Use standard controls. And the people who won't fail, who really do have artists on staff, aren't offended by this message. They understand who Apple is talking to when they say that. They don't go back and say, well, I was going to make an awesome-looking, you know, uh, delicious library interface with with bookshelves and stuff, but they told me not to. No, they're going to make it whether they, whether you tell them not to or not, or, or not. Uh, you know, and the people with the skill to do it do it, and they come out head and shoulders above everybody else. And I think this is the way Apple wants it, and the way Apple has always wanted it. They're not going to chide you for making custom controls. Like they give you Apple Design Awards. I think a lot of these applications that want Apple Design Awards, these are applications that violate the Hig ten ways to Sunday. But if you if you can pull it off, if you can make your app look awesome. Apple says, great, thumbs up, here's an award. We're giving you an award for violating our guidelines. Right? They, very rarely do they give you an award for making an application that exactly complies with the human interface guidelines. They want you to go above and beyond. What they don't want you to do is try to go above and beyond when you don't have the skills to do it. So that's why their message is always no custom controls. Do not use custom controls without a really, really good reason. Trust us, you'll make more work for yourself. You make your app uglier. Uglier, when we make a new version of the operating system, your custom controls are going to break. You're not going to inherit new behaviors. It's going to be tons of work for you to keep your app updated, and we don't like that. So use custom controls and wink, wink, nudge, nudge. For you guys out there who have super-duper skills, uh, we know you're going to do what you do anyway, and we'll give you an award for it later. Okay, That's then. all I have to say on... That's it, huh? Just that. Yeah, just that. Okay. Good. What did we skip over? We skipped over the the App Store rejection. I'll save that for later. Yeah, you got to say we're we're, email contacts. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, we're done. This is a good week. This is a good week. I love people love it when you go on a rant like that. Love it. I do too. I don't know how many of those I have left in me. We're running out of topics on the list, right? I'm going to start adding topics when you run out. Yeah, 
and we can always talk about movies. I don't know how people feel about that. No, well, I, I, let's say I hesitant we'll, to ask for feedback. But well, we'll here's what we'll do. We will end the show here, and then we'll keep talking, and we'll make an after dark out of it. So people who are super fans want to hear this next part of the conversation. They can go to five by five TV slash after dark, where they get all the special behind the scenes stuff. But that's it. So listen, thanks to FreshBooks.com. Please go check these guys out. They're, it's, I, I'm so excited because it's changed my life. And uh, also check out MailChimp.com. They have a great service even if you don't make iOS apps. But if you do, go to MailChimp.com slash ChimpKit. And uh, John Syracuse can be followed on Twitter at Syracuse. There's no Z in Syracuse. That's him on Twitter. I'm Dan Benjamin on Twitter. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for being a part of the show. We'll be back next week.